When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, thank you for choosing to listen this week to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell and this week we welcomed the return of the Champions League for its knockout stage and that forms the basis, the inspiration for this week's episode, a Champions League roundtable discussion talking with Liam Tharm, Mark Kerry and Michael Cox about what we learned from this week's matches and what we'll look forward to next week and in the latter rounds. Michael Cox reckons there's a half chance that this year's competition could be won by something of an outsider. Well, I think there's more of a chance than usual. I mean, by definition, outsiders probably won't triumph. But the first thing to say is this is the final year before the Swiss model comes in. There's different interpretations about how that will affect things. Personally, I think just eight group games rather than six group games, if you can still call them group games, will mean probably fewer chances for outsiders to go through. This year, I think there's been a big drop off from two of the champions of major European leagues with Barcelona and particularly Napoli, who was sensational last year, won the league by miles. They're struggling down in seventh at the moment. Bayern as well, it must be said, going through a bit of a mini crisis, certainly by their standards. And I think a lot of clubs, the bigger clubs are kind of regenerating. I think the exodus to the Saudi Pro League, I don't think that's going to turn the Saudi Arabian top flight into a major force. But I think it has weakened the big European mm. clubs. There's a lot of players there, Cristiano Ronaldo, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino. They weren't going to Saudi Arabia. They might well have stuck around in Europe and be at this stage of the competition. So for various reasons, I think more so than in recent seasons and probably more so than in future seasons, maybe there's a chance for an outsider to, to sneak in. I think the grouping might have played a slight role as well. There's the group of death, as it it was labelled. You look at Milan, who came third in that, were semi-finalists last season. Okay, they weren't necessarily the most sort of dominant team or, or attack-minded team, but sort of epitomised how you can get through those knockout rounds by changing system if you need to by being a little bit more pragmatic quite defense first and being really really solid in in both boxes and and similarly group d was was a little bit i think it was pretty labeled one of the more hipster groups with just the teams that were in there in, in real sociedad inter benfica and rb salzburg but uh there were three of those teams uh excluding salzburg that made the knockouts last season as well so you've got some of those teams that okay they might not be the heavyweights but but did go a decent way uh into the competition that, that aren't there this season you know, there's also a positive of that. Of It makes for some quite exciting ties, I think, as well, going into those rounds. Mark, yourself and a few colleagues wrote a really nice primer for the round of 16 of the teams that were allocated to you, that you wrote about. Which did you find most compelling heading into the, the knockout stages? Well, I looked at it as a as a cohort of the, the whole teams, of the, the strength of all of them and the, the mismatches, I guess, as much as anything. And, and we saw from this week of Manchester City being drawn against... Copenhagen and they are the, the biggest mismatch in, in quality and the, the closest in quality is PSV against Borussia Dortmund which I think is going to make for a really interesting clash across both legs in terms of PSV being very strong um, from an attacking perspective their numbers show that and we can come on to that later but 
and having such a transitional threat, but Borussia Dortmund also having a transitional threat and it being, I, I predict that it'll be quite a, a slugging match and they'll really go toe-to-toe rather than it necessarily be changing the, the respective tactics to try and contain the opposition like we're maybe seeing from a, a minnow against a favourite, shall we say. So that one of, of all of the ties is my uh, my pick to, to come next week. We're almost willing an outsider to go deep in a competition like this because top-level European football has become less and less competitive in, in many ways. But just to specify what we mean when we say an outsider, I mean, the favourites for the competition this year are last season's champions and treble winners, Manchester City, uh, FC Bayern of Germany, Arsenal and Real Madrid. When we talk about an outsider having a chance, are we saying any team outside of, of that four? Or would Arsenal count as an outsider given their lack of uh, history in the last decade in this competition? Well, that's a funny thing. I mean, that's why I think it is more open than usual because a side like Arsenal who haven't been in the competition for six seasons, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, third favourites or joint third favourites. So... You can think of outsiders, whoever you want. I just think there's less of an established elite who are clearly going to get through to the quarterfinals. And therefore, it's a bit more open than usual. I've just had a quick look at Opta's prediction numbers. And of course, this is after the first leg of of some of the games. So they'll be slightly skewed by that. But City, as you imagine, are are the overwhelming favourites. Real Madrid follow them. And then you've got between sort of 8 and 11% that they've given probability for for winning it are Inter, PSG and Arsenal. And I think Inter are probably a great example of this where they were, I think, largely the outsiders last season. By the time they sort of really grew into the competition and, you know, got, got through the rounds that there, there were some shouts early in the competition that, okay, they might actually be set up well to, to go deep into this. And people were like, yeah, but they'll play someone good and just get knocked out and then kind of didn't really play a ridiculously difficult team and, and kept getting through. Um, so I wonder if that also benefits someone like them specifically because they've got sort of history now of playing sort of more cup games and Arsenal are a team that have had a really good period of time in the Premier League and come a long way, but you go haven't played a huge amount of knockout football, mm. didn't go particularly deep in, in the Europa League last season, sure came in, early under Arteta as a, a fairly cup specialist team in, in the FA Cup. Um, but I think a lot of that squad has churned actually since then. So they've got those sort sort of roots. But um, yeah, as Michael says, there's there's not really many teams that are sort of as complete as City or Real Madrid in terms of having the quality, probably having the the experience and sort of the, the tactical sort of know-how to, to go with that. So some of them maybe have one or two of those things, but, but not all three. Mm. Let's touch on the favourites, the champions from last year, Manchester City. 3-1 up. After the first leg that was in Copenhagen, Michael, how did they look in the return to Champions League action? What are they doing well at the moment in this competition? I think they were more based upon possession and control than usual. I know it's a Guardiola team, so that's generally how they want to play. But Grealish came in, hasn't started very much. But him on the left, I think generally means that Guardiola wants to slow the play down. And it's maybe slightly depressing to be saying that about Grealish because he used to be someone who really Mm. accelerated the play. But I don't think that's the case anymore. You had Foden on the other flank uh, and Bernardo Silva in central midfield. And even the presence of John Stones, who hasn't always been fit in recent months, he is the best player by miles that they've got at playing that hybrid role, half defender, half midfielder. Things did change a bit because Grealish went off injured early and Jeremy Doku came in, uh, came in and he's a very different player. But overall, I thought it was a really impressive performance from City, actually. Just went away difficult atmosphere slightly difficult surroundings to play in I think particularly in the first half they they really controlled the game very well 3-1's a pretty impressive win I think at Copenhagen when you look at how well they did in the group stage I mean yeah Michael speaking about the the left hand side but the right hand side as well with Foden keeping his his width so so well on the the right hand side and 
it's not a hot take by any stretch, but Kevin De Bruyne, you just have to mention him every time. Um, <laughs> just how strong, how strong he's been since coming back. I don't think it's it's to be underestimated just how strong he's been from a fairly hefty hamstring injury where he was you know struggling to walk when you know it's just after it happened and he's only played seven games not all of them starts since coming back and he scored two goals and got seven assists and we know from this podcast that purely looking at assists alone isn't the, the best way to kind of measure creativity but it's still just unbelievable just yeah how quickly he's got up to speed and his his running especially it's been covered you know on some of the analysis in the the days that have followed but of Foden keeping his, his wit so well and the, the seam runs, the channel runs that Kevin De Bruyne is known for across multiple seasons still, because mm. we maybe haven't seen it as much because he's been out, to see it again, it's just, it's so hard to defend against. It's so explosive the way that he, he does it, that he plays between the lines in terms of you know front to back, but also in terms of that that half space and the, the centre-back doesn't know whether to, to mark him and then get dragged and then he's keeping space for Haaland. Or whether to go out to the, the fullback to go out to to Foden, it just seems like Manchester City as a team have got it so well drilled to be able to do that. But De Bruyne is so so good at it, and we haven't seen it as much on the right hand side. Michael's covered extensively about Bernardo Silva doing it quite a lot on the the left hand side at the start of the season. Um, but it's just a joy to watch. Mm. I just wanted to give a shout out to him. And you compare that to last season, where look City end up winning a treble and I think they won one of their uh, away games in the entire Champions League campaign and none of those in the knockout so they, they drew away they were cagey a lot of the time I remember them I think specifically uh, away to Real Madrid being sort of really quite clear and being very settled possession not wanting to sort of allow turnovers again these aren't necessarily t- people look at it and say okay it's it's a mismatch sure but I think it's the it's the type of game in terms of the control and avoiding the chaos that, that Guardiola wants so yeah, these are these are big games, I think, and big statements to build on what they've done from last season, which was a really solid base and to then, you know, completely blow these teams away at home that if you can win that first leg away, then it just puts you in even even more of a driving seat to possibly rotate, be more adaptable and also then better balance that with, uh, you know, a Premier League title chase mm-hmm. now uh, and possibly other cup competitions as well. We talked at length last season about the evolution of their tactics, which led to them wiping away the question marks that had existed in this tournament for Guardiola's Manchester City. Michael, to expand on this theme of Pep and Man City's micro tweaks, are are there any key differences right now between uh, them currently and last season when they wrapped up that treble? I think they're pretty similar. I think um, the difference really came in the first half of the season when they didn't have De Bruyne and Haaland for long periods. I mean, they, they started together for the first time like, three weeks ago or mm. something. So now now they're back. I think it's pretty similar. I mean, Doku's come in as a pure dribbler, really. I think maybe the biggest change has been the improvement of Phil Foden, who's always been a really talented player, at times been an effective player, but hasn't always been a starter. I mean, he didn't start in the Champions League final. For example, he came on for De Bruyne when he got injured. But his form at the moment, his performance against Brentford last week was fantastic. Um, and he's so versatile as well. And we talk about versatility, you know, being able to play in different positions, but I think he can play different roles within the same position as well. He can play almost as a winger, or he can be on that side and drift in field like David Silva used to do. Mm-hmm. So I think he his improvement gives them even more options. But no, I think they're pretty similar. It's uh, it's one of, the, one of the few seasons where Guardiola hasn't changed something massive from one season to the next, which... I guess makes sense as they won the treble, but traditionally, even when they win, he he likes to mix things up. So, yeah, not too much different in my opinion. 
Before the games this week, before the round of 16 kicked off, the second favourites for the Champions League were Bayern. They lost against Lazio on Wednesday night, a Chiro Immobile penalty. Saw them fall 1-0. What was the performance like? How did that match look, Mark? Yeah, it was. It kind of lacked cohesion from a from a Bayern perspective. Um, they returned to their four two three one system after trying to change to a more of a, a wing back system against Bayer Leverkusen, and for reasons that we can come on to, that just did not work at all. So there was almost no excuse in terms of going back to that that more familiar system. But they they still didn't quite have the the vigor that they maybe should have and you'd expect from from Bayern. They had no shots on target mm. uh, across the whole game, which is sort of telling in itself. I think they did have some really good opportunities. There was a, a well-worked uh, free kick from from Leroy Sané that sort of was passed between for him to uh, to shoot. There was a Musiala chance and a, and a Harry Kane chance. So w- among those players, you'd expect to yeah. score from that. That could be, you know, easily a, a 2-0 or a 2-1 and then the, the outlook looks very different. But... Overall, I think it was quite a flat performance from Bayern. And Michael mentioned their sort of mini crisis before, but it is their first back-to-back defeat in four years. <laughs> so it's not like we're talking about something that's absolutely horrendous. They're still obviously in the competition. They could potentially still win the Bundesliga. Um, but Lazio were, Lazio were good. They they had a good game plan um, and it was what you'd expect. They they couldn't really go toe-to-toe with, with Bayern because they know that they're not as strong in attack. So they contained Bayern they they sat deep for for long periods um and hit them on the counter attack where they could and they obviously got the the penalty that was the deciding goal in in this leg at least but yeah they 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 played it well it was their third lowest possession uh, share of the season in in all competitions so i think that kind of tells you what yeah. they they look to do and they they did it well what will happen in the next leg we'll we'll see that's still 3 weeks away for for Bayern to potentially turn things around I'm smiling because I was listening to the radio last night while these games were on and the co-commentator that was talking about the Bayern Lazio game was tearing his hair out at Lazio's approach at nil-nil saying uh, you know very uh, poetic terms that in the city of the gladiators they weren't showing a huge amount of bravery but is this essentially uh, dreary on the radio (laughs) (laughs) but it's interesting isn't it because the the state of elite European football. These are in theory the sixteen strongest teams currently in in European football. But even within that group, Michael, that there are games between teams uh, playing against Manchester City, against Bayern, for example, where that probably is the sensible approach, the pragmatic approach, the approach that gives them the best chance of progression, even if it might not conjure images of gladiators. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably true. And I think there's a lot of teams who probably just feel like underdogs coming into this mm. stage. I mean, Lazio are traditionally reasonably big club in European competition, but I don't think of them having many European runs. I really can't think of them making a major impact on the Champions League mm. for a long time. Maybe I'm missing a season or something. But yeah, if they're up against Bayern, I think it's within the realms of what Sarri would want to do. Pretty, pretty much a backs-to-the-wall performance. And while we're on the topic of Bayern, that result at the weekend that Mark alluded to, a 3-0 defeat to Bayer Leverkusen, the biggest result of the Bundesliga season so far, huge impact on the title race. How excited should we all be about this Leverkusen side, their rise this season under Xabi Alonso and and potential title winners in in Germany? Yeah, very excited. I think um, the biggest win of this season, probably the biggest win of many seasons in European competition, 
Uh, they're an excellent side. I mean, when you actually look at Bayern's points return this season, it's pretty much on course with what they've done in previous seasons. It's just Leverkusen is so good. Got a late equaliser in the first fixture, won this one completely convincingly. Yeah, they're an excellent team, really cohesive, uh, usually a 3-4-2-1 system, but what they do down the left flank is really interesting. Grimaldo, the wing-back in theory, is more of a left winger or central midfielder, is putting up the best numbers I've ever seen for a player in that position. Wow. And yeah, Xabi Alonso, what he's done there, he's turned them around so quickly. And it's, it's obvious that he's wanted by, obviously, two of his former clubs, Liverpool and Bayern Munich, seemingly, to be their manager next year. From what I gather, Liverpool are the favourites in that respect. But it's a shame they're not in the Champions League. I mean, they are very strong favourites, I would suggest, for the Europa League. But they're close to being the best side in Europe this season. I think that is clear. Liam, are you happy with Xabi Alonso's rise to being the, the hottest managerial property in Europe at the moment? Yeah, it's pretty hard to argue against. I think you'd look at their, their record this season. I think it's interesting that they were probably a lot more adaptable last season in terms of how they could sort of tweak in games. And this this season seems a lot more, it's not necessarily more sort of pattern orientated, but they're, they're really, really smart at how they sort of build through, you know, the, the central part of the pitch. I saw a good couple of clips from, from that buying game where often their, their double pivot will get marked out the game. So they'll sort of play into a number 10 and then back into a central midfielder. And it sort of goes quickly in back and then through and out the other side. The big test really is, and I guess this often comes in the back half of the season once you've already played teams once. And again, it's even more mm. difficult in knockout games where teams will be quite defence orientated of, yeah, how do you play through when teams, if you've been really good over half a season, are going to say, right, well, we're not going to go there and press again. Or when they come to us, we're not going to press them again like that and maybe sit off more. So I think to, yeah, actually maintain it for a full season is is really, really difficult. We maybe saw that a little bit with, with Napoli last season, who are probably a good way of comparison. Sure, the style's a little bit different, but I think they're sort of like the immediacy of their rise is uh, is a bit more comparable. And I know they had the title wrapped up fairly early on and could sort of fall away and it not be a problem. Really intrigued to see how they balance knockout football now with, with chasing the, the title, especially because obviously they got quite deep last season and then, you know, faced a, a, a Mourinho-Roma side. And so I wonder if they come up against similar position, if mm. they can get over that hurdle this time. There's the obvious chat as well, just briefly on Alonso, of him maybe going to Liverpool or maybe moving to, you know, a different club. And, the, the sort of the stick that's maybe used to, to beat him with it, it might be a bit, little bit too dogmatic in terms of his his setup. But as Liam said, it can be quite flexible. And at Real Sociedad B, he used a, a 4-2-3-1 and a 4-3-3 shape. And there's a really good piece in the coach's voice which outlines that. And it's still kind of based on the principles of central progression, as, as Liam mentioned, and a lot of counter-pressing and being really compact out of possession. But I think to suggest that Alonso, whether that is at Bayer Leverkusen next season and having to adapt or maybe adapting to a, a new side and new um, set of players, I think to suggest that he can't adapt um, already in his young management career is underestimating him as a, as a coach already, I think. I think this is the biggest flaw when people talk about recruiting a new manager. I mean, I don't think the Klopp's Liverpool looks that much like Klopp's Dortmund. And there's a couple of similar concepts, but the shape's completely different. The style of play is completely different. I say the strengths are out wide with his Liverpool team, whereas it was through the middle with his Dortmund team. You could say the same for Guardiola, like all this kind of template approach. The players don't fit the system. What well, he's only been a manager of one team, and they haven't lost all mm. season. So, I, yeah, I find some of these criticisms a little bit mad. Not just with this case, with with managers in general. And I suppose even uh, using 
data to identify a, a manager's tactical trends or proclivities you know can sometimes ignore the context of the league that they're playing in the opposition that they play against the way that they set up in those games against that team as well so i mean look and the players at his disposal and the players i mean if you ta- no offense to him because he looks like a good young player but if he's turning someone like nathan teller into like a bundesliga winner like a championship player last mm. season I'm sure he's not going to come to Liverpool and go to Mohamed Salah. Well, you've got to play like this. Not, mate, tell us, tell us a good player. I mean, <laughs> he's, who's, right. he's not Mohamed Salah. You're talking about what he's done so far in a short career, but you forget that, you know, people can raise their, people can raise their level. Uh, he's an interesting player. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. There were two wins for two of the usual favorites, Real Madrid another of Xabi Alonso's former sides. They beat Leipzig 1-0, and PSG beat Xabi Alonso's former side, Real Sociedad, 2-0 as well. Liam, PSG and the Champions League has been quite a sort of messy marriage. That's uh, a generous way of putting it. A yeah. messy relationship over the last <laughs> decade or so. Oh, messy. Sometimes quite literally messy. Yeah, that's clever. Um, how did they go against La Real? 20 years into Messi's career, people are still amazed at the, these kind of puns. <laughs> Incredible. The result is what they would have wanted. It's, it's a 2 0 win. I found them really unconvincing and it felt quite easy to, to predict in the sense that they're a really sort of hyper focused build up team playing short, Real Sociedad or, or Larial being one of the best high pressing teams. And they pressed out of a, a 43 1 uh, Larial and it, it made a lot of sense because it just naturally set up to man mark in midfield for the, the singular PSG defensive midfielder and, and the two number eights. They were really good at it. They made 13 final third regains. They were really smart at mixing between having the, the wingers start narrow and press the fullbacks wide. But there were times where often with, with Kuba off the right, he'd come centrally. They'd have him and a number nine up against the PSG centre-backs. And then when they would play out to the fullbacks, this is PSG, they'd have down the right-hand side, one of the defensive midfielders would jump to the fullback. A centre-back would jump to take his place and they'd leave it 3v3 on the halfway line, which is mm-hmm. fairly brave when it's Dembele, Barcola and, and Mbappe <laughs> uh, there. But they were squeezing it. They were coordinated. They all knew when to go. And down the left side, it looked a little bit different. They'd have the, the left-back jumping to, to Hakimi and keeping a bit more structure that side. So... They were brave and it counted against them a bit at the end because the second Gladiators goal, would have enjoyed that performance. Well, famously fans of pressing, yeah. Um, <laughs> the second goal comes about when actually the press doesn't quite click and come off and Dembele you know, gets into some space and can face forward and they play left to right. But PSG had two big chances in the game. They scored their first goal from, from a corner. They really, really struggled. I'm not sure Mbappe as a number nine worked in this game. And I was just sort of looking at it going forward and being like, They've consistently failed. I think it's five in the last seven years at this stage of, of the competition. Fair enough, they've played some good teams, but they've also crashed out quite badly. I don't think it's completely you know, out of the woods that they don't 
go to the, re the return leg and also sort of crash in a, in a similar way. And even beyond that, Luis Enrique has been in the job over seven months now. They've consistently struggled against the high press and don't really have the players to build out. Mm. They're really missing Verratti, funnily enough, because just one of the best midfielders of the recent generation. But you then go, do you need to be a little bit more adaptable? And I think there was a quote from, from Peter Rutz's piece, which is really good. Well, I thought really bad, where Luis Enrique was saying, it doesn't matter if, if we lose, but you have to lose by playing the way that you want to. That's part of sport. We have to We have to stay true to ourselves, which... I don't think really sits right for me for someone that's gone into a club where your primary remit probably is to try and get quite deep in the Champions League and actually being adaptable, we've seen with probably Inter and Man City, two great examples of the finalists last season, prepared to be adaptable and maybe Guardiola wasn't for a period of time, but when you avoid just saying, I'm going to die on my sword and I'm not saying completely abandon all your principles, but maybe find ways to tweak things and, and know who you're going up against. Just on that contrast between the first half and the second half, Liam, I know you've written a piece off the back of this. Do you think it was more down to... Real Sociedad's press and maybe energy levels reducing in the second half or was it more PSG working out ways to to overcome that press because the the, the second goal where Dembele actually wriggles away from pressure is it the fact that he'd come deep and he's quite a good 1v1 player to then actually break the press was it more to do with PSG from a positive perspective or more just that Real Sociedad just lost a little bit of energy? You can't argue that they definitely were more tired and I think one of the strengths of, of PSG in the in the second half was they started sort of switching it a bit more. They'd start missing players out and they started forcing to shuffle from, from left to right and there comes a point where players either switch off mentally or physically and don't quite get there. You get an extra half a second and yet Dembele is, is really, really good. It, it came down to moments of brilliance. There was a, a moment in the first half where similarly he got the ball, managed to face up and dribble through and he got... Norman, the, the left centre like he got booked for just basically flattening him. There's gonna be moments where that comes off, but I go, that's not doesn't look like a a really good reflection of your tactical plan where you've worked something and got a free man where you found the space. It's your wingers come fifteen yards deep, manage to get away from pressure and dribble through. And fine, that's a, a valid solution, but that's two or three times it's happened in the game and 13 times you've lost the ball in your own third. I don't think that's a fantastic either idea of a game plan or execution or both. So I my big worry really is what do you do in the next round when that's a better team? Because Lareal are in their second ever European knockouts and they're a really great side, probably punching above their weight. But, you know, you're a bigger club than they are. This this is a bit of a worry for me. The thing about PSG is they're boring. They're, they're not interesting at all. Like before, they obviously had three star players and that was interesting at how they tried to accommodate them, the compromises they had to make, the roles of the other players. Okay, it didn't always work, but it was we knew what PSG were all about. We're trying to mm. shove these three brilliant players in the same team it didn't always work. And I agree on Verratti. I think without Verratti, they're much less interesting. He's another player, brilliant creator, but you had to make certain allowances for him. Now they're, they're just like a normal team. They've got normal players playing normal roles. Mbappe can do what he wants in the centre forward position. He's, you know, ended up in that role as great players tend to do. It's a very general rule. I just, I just think it's a shame, really. Mm. I mean, they're, they're just a bit more sensible. And I don't think that's in anyone's interest apart from maybe their own, but I still don't think they'll win it <laughs> because I don't think they get tested enough. Luis Enrique said after the game that the game against uh, Real Sociedad, it was our toughest test of the season. Well, that's league in for mm. you, isn't it? They, they, they're not prepared, in my opinion, for games against really good teams. And I don't really see how that problem will ever be solved. I largely agree with that, but ironically enough, they just played Lille and Brest, who are two teams that also press quite high out of a 4 2 3 1. So I was going, if you ever were to have a test in Liga, and maybe not quite in terms of quality, but it is the dilemma that they face, and you kind of go, you've you know, you're almost playing two different formats at times. If you've got a massive quality and um, at times tactical superiority over these teams, then how do you find a way? And you might need to go, 
well, we just can't do both things and expect mm. to win both of them because well, it's not worked before and there's no signs it will work now. What about Real Madrid, Michael? They beat Leipzig 1-0. If people are switching on for the first time this season, watching a Real Madrid game, uh, to what extent do they look like the classic Ancelotti, Real Madrid, who have had such a strong history in this competition in the last five, six, seven years or so? Uh, have they taken on a new skin or is it more of the same? Well, I suppose it's classic Ancelotti in the sense there isn't really a classic Ancelotti team other than the fact it's it's a result of the the strongest players. Obviously, compared to last year, they've lost Benzema, who was probably the Champions League player of the last three or four years. Um, and Jude Bellingham's come in, and that has meant Bellingham has played a different role probably to the one he would have expected. He's done it very well. And when Bellingham is absent, you have someone like Diaz who came in and scored brilliant goal against Leipzig. I mean, a really genius goal. And of course, maybe we should consider this game and the weekend 4-0 win against Girona as one because that was probably the biggest game of the La Liga season and they were brilliant in that game. Vinicius, well, Ancelotti called him the best player in the world at the moment. I think that's quite an Ancelotti thing to do. I don't think other managers would necessarily go out of their way to highlight an individual, but he is playing brilliantly. Rodrigo, He's a brilliantly efficient young player. There was never any kind of quirks to iron out mm -hmm. from what I saw. He was always very efficient in the final third. They have a very strong defence. They have a, a midfield base who can control the game. And they have attackers who are... It would be unfair to call them individuals because I think they combine very well as well. Mm -hmm. I think Vinicius and Rodrigo have a brilliant understanding. But yeah, it is broadly speaking what you would expect from a, an Ancelotti Real Madrid team. And I think one thing from a data perspective, which I think is quite interesting to sort of highlight this, is just how much they are a, a bit of a transformer of a team. If they want to be one way, they can. If they want to be another way, they can. So they have the most sequences of 10 passes or more in La Liga, mm -hmm. but they also have the third most direct attacks in La Liga. So, you know, as we spoke about before, a proxy of counterattacking. So if you want them to hold on to it for a little bit, they, they can. But if you want to just really punish them, use the, the space in behind with the off-ball running of Jude Bellingham, the, the pace of Vinicius Jr. and Rodrigo, etc. Mm. They can do both. They can do either. So it's really quite difficult to pin them down in cup competitions as well as league at the moment because they'll they'll transform. They'll mm. be whoever you want them to be. Not a foregone conclusion, though. Are we are we writing Leipzig off? No, I mean, it's still tight. Only only 1-0. And I think that Leipzig, to, to the point I made before in terms of having a good setup, I thought that it was, it was really even across the whole game. I think that I'm not going to get into any controversy, but I think that RB Leipzig did have a, a goal chalked off that was a fairly legitimate goal. Um, so that could controversial. <laughs> Sounds pretty controversial <laughs> to me, Mark. It could have changed the complete complexion of the game because it was so early on. I think we, you know, Xavi Simons is, is such a fantastic player. Benjamin Sesko had six shots in the game, more than anyone else on the pitch. He's he's a raw young talent, but he's he's really strong. Um, he's uh, very big and he's very fast. He has both of those. He has a very powerful shot on him. He just lacks the finesse or the, maybe the composure at times. But he's 20 years old, playing in the Champions League. That's to be expected, but um, yeah, one nil. It was still really tight, and and I do think Leipzig were not afraid of, of Real Madrid, which I think you know the Bernabeu is a different place, but I think it it bode well for for Leipzig going into the second leg. I know they never really get many sort of tactical ratings, Real Madrid, and the team is I think a little bit more sort of freestyle than others. But I think there's a really big amount of praise they deserve in terms of their their adaptability. You look at um, the fact that they've lost lost Courtois, Benzema as well two of their players who in their Champions League winning seasons have been 
the difference makers in, in both boxes. Wow. Uh, Luna made, I think, some like eight or nine saves in, in the game. Which was the most since the Champions League final against Liverpool. Which, which was, was a record. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. was a record um, at the time. Which is, is just quite neat. And I think it's the exact way that you have to be to sustain success in multiple seasons is you, you find a way with the players that you have, which is okay. And I've not seen a huge ton of Real Madrid, but when I have seen them, it looks like it's a lot more of a fluid sort of forward unit of players that, that can rotate, can interchange. And sometimes that works. I think I'd be really intrigued in a comparison to PSG, who feel like one of the most structured teams. Obviously, we won't go into the transfer saga at all, but obviously with Kylian Mbappe possibly going there, mm. that might be the sort of system where you go on paper, how on earth do you fit in Mbappe into a line with Rodrigo and, and Vinicius and, and Bellingham? But you kind of go they might actually just be able to figure that out themselves on the pitch because they're already smart and really quite good. So that could be, again, you think of how stacked that system already is, adding some quality like that might just get even better. And lots to look forward to in next week's fixtures as well, Liam. Not least the match that I believe based on ratings and bookmaker odds is considered basically the tightest uh, to call. That's Inter Milan against Atletico Madrid. I think this is a a great game. I've seen a lot more Inter than I've seen, seen Atletico, but um, I think they're two teams that often branded as just being very defensive teams, actually quite forward-thinking, very sort of attack-minded. Um, I wrote recently on Inter and sort of saying how their adaptability is, is so good that they they were they were topping Serie A for 10-plus pass sequences. This is a bit like what, what Mark was saying with, with Real Madrid, um, but also, you know, top for, for high press goals, really good set-piece team as well, mm-hmm. can counter-attack when they need to. And again, two teams that sort of play a similar system at times in sort of a 3-5-2 and can threaten from out wide. Um, but maybe with forward units operating in a bit of a, a different way. And it's just stacked full of talent as well, I think, across the pitch. So it's the, these are ideal where it's games where I think at a similar level with similar sort of tactics or like a, a PSG Real Sociedad game where you go really different clashes and styles that should make it hard. And then it's a case of you win based on how well you can execute your style to stop the other team. So yeah, this, this should be a great game. I agree. I think this is the tie of the round. I'm really looking forward to it. And I think the managers will look forward to the tactical battle. The only thing I'd say is, in a way, I don't think they're a great match for each other. In the sense, I'd, I'd fancy both of these sides to if you're out-tactic a lot of the other clubs at this stage. But they're both so intelligent in that respect. I think it's, uh, it's a shame to lose one of them, actually, at this stage. Because I think they both have the capability to go really far. But yeah, this is the one I'm going to make sure I'm watching. I was going to say, the, the drama of a Diego Simeone team in a knockout competition is it's a pointed viewing. Michael, you mentioned earlier that, that both Barcelona and Napoli, last season's title winners in Spain and Italy, have fallen away somewhat in league competition. Uh, they're playing against each other next week, which is quite a neat way for us to, to measure how they're both looking on the continental scene. Yeah, the Diego Maradona derby. They met in 2020 and in 2022, so we've become accustomed to this clash. Last season, I think it would have been a great game. This time around, it feels almost a bit dreary, to be honest. Right. I don't like Napoli at all at the moment. They've completely lost everything that made them into brilliant title winners last year. To get in Mazzari again, I mean, he did a great job with them about a decade ago, but I don't think he really knows what he's doing. They've they've switched to three at the back for a couple of their games recently. That hasn't looked particularly good. Barcelona, I think their demise has maybe been slightly exaggerated. I still think they're a decent team. I'd fancy them to come out on top on this one. One, because they are just playing much better football. And second, because I think they've got individuals who can make the difference. Mm. And so often, I mean, I, I wrote this in a in that piece about outsiders, you know, this maybe being the year for them. So often these tight Champions League games, I think more than league games and more than international tournaments, it's just one moment of brilliance from one individual. 
can change things. And even though they're kind of getting on a bit, I would still say Lewandowski can do that. Mm-hmm. Gundogan can do that. They have got players. I mean, Yamal, complete other end of the age spectrum, has been fantastic in recent weeks. So, yeah, I, I don't think Barcelona have a great chance of winning this competition, but I'd be surprised if they didn't go through here. The one thing in the back of my mind about Barca is their record this season of conceding four or five goals in individual games has just come out of the blue completely. And worries me in high-pressure situations, the personality of that team, potentially something not quite right there. Of course, Xavi will be leaving the club at the end of the season as well, so it's a chance to kind of rescue some some legacy, I guess, uh, for him as Barca manager. PSV, I feel like we've talked a bit about PSV because what fun, exciting team they are and what a season they're having. Uh, could they be one of the outsiders that have a chance? They're playing against Dortmund. Yeah, going forward, they're fantastic to watch. It's it's a really good fun 4-3-3, really attack-minded. You've got real sort of box-crashing number eight. Um, I think Johan Bakayoko off, off the right is really, really great fun to watch. He's this prime example of a... He's a left-footed right winger, but this this sort of Jeremy Doku type player who can go both ways, can go on the byline, can cut inside and shoot, cut a far post cross. And they're probably a little bit more vertical than you expect to see sort of top teams. I mean, they are playing Luke de Jong and he's scoring a lot of goals. It's not quite a target man role because it's not it's not that sort of route one lot of the time, but they will try to build up. And if that doesn't work, then they'll they'll hit him and play off him and have sort of runners beyond. Doesn't work, I think, quite as well in the Champions League where you just come up against better, tighter defences, better pressing teams. And of course, Petr Bosch has, has come unstuck in sort of these sort of situations before and their their rest defence or counter press, if it is loose or isn't quite there, then they're going to get played through because they're prepared to be so expansive. So, so will this be quite a nice, uh, for the neutral meeting of... of- them and, and Dortmund feels like stylistically it could be fireworks. Yeah, and then I guess in the same way that we're saying it, it would be a shame to lose Inter or, or Atletico, I think it would be nice to keep one of PSV um, or, or Dortmund in there because I feel like Dortmund always seem to go a decent le- level into the into the knockouts without ever going sort of too far and can always sort of be just awkward to play against. They came out top of that group of death without really ever sort of setting anything truly on fire. They're quite a low-scoring team and, and can keep things quite tight and, and be quite defensive, but I think, yeah, anyone who wants to watch a, a really dynamic, really sort of flowing uh, attacking team, PSV are great. They'll, they'll tuck in the right back a lot and push the left back on. There's some really good sort of technical players in there. That's me. That is what I would like to watch. So thank you. Enjoy. Well, I will pick you up on one thing, though. Mm. You referenced Jeremy Doku as the prototype uh, winger that mm. can go both ways. I just want to flag up Usman Dembele. Sure. Because he is famously mm. incredibly both-footed mm. or ampipedal. Is that how you would it say is. that? Really not ambidextrous. Ambi. Ambi. Ambi Yeah, you guys are smarter than me. Um, but, I mean, he is yeah. remarkable off both feet. And mm-hmm. I, by contrast, there have been games this season where opposition teams against Doku have been pretty happy for him to go down the outside because they, they don't think his maybe his the actually of his crossing with his left foot would be uh, quite so good. Anyway. Not to take anything away from from that young man who's a, a hell of a player as well. Uh, the last of the the favourites that we touched on earlier, but let's talk about in in a little more depth. Arsenal, because it's their first time playing in this competition for some time, and because they are in such great shape in the league at the moment, and are a good few years into their their sort of evolution under Mikel Arteta. I'm really interested to know if we have a sense of whether their style of play under Arteta will suit knockout Champions League football. I think it might. They've got a pretty good defensive record. At times in, in the past couple of weeks, they've almost played four centre-backs across the back with Curio and Ben White, who was a centre-back before he moved to the right. 
it feels odd because they don't have any experience of this competition. And I do think it's fair to, to put question marks there in terms of, one, can they deal with the real high-pressure situations at the end of seasons? They didn't do that particularly well last year. And second, can they fight on two fronts? Because Arteta at times has been criticised for not rotating his team, for, you know, to a certain extent, running a couple of players into the ground, playing them every week. Looks like they're going to be challenging for the league. So, yeah, I mean, they are, I think, they are a contender. But there's a there's a surprising number of question marks about a team who are third or fourth favourites to win it for me. I, I agree with that. I think there's an interesting balance you get here of teams in Europe and in knockout rounds. While there might be more defence focused or at least a little bit pragmatic, probably aren't going to sit in in the 5-4-1 that Arsenal gets a lot in the Premier League. They've had to basically break open a lot of games recently with set-piece goals, which is a great asset to have. It's worked really well. Um, so they're sticking to the in-swingers on both sides. You've got Rice now taking them off the left. They've just had good routines, good balance, good use of screens. It's become very mainstream, I think, in recent weeks. But I completely agree on the squad depth. I think that's that's a big worry. It was really there, I think, undoing um, at the back end of last season. And their depth is better now, but I think still trying to get that balance right. And dare I say the alchemy, to so mm-hmm. use a carryism. Um, and I'd also ask questions about not really having one out-and-out set score, which I don't think they need to be, be a successful team. But um, I think you look at teams across the Champions League in recent years do tend to have someone that will pop up in big moments and always score. Um, if teams like they have done in the Premier League can tend to mark Saka and Martinelli up the game or, or sort of double team them, then that does become a bit more difficult. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot to prove would be the best way I can say about Arsenal, which they've done to a good degree in the in the league, but um, and they can't do it yet. And they were good enough in, in the group stages. And when teams did come onto them, see, see Lens, um and see PSV as well, then they can absolutely rip these teams apart. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my point about it was quite refreshing considering I think it was in and around the time they were playing yeah, Everton and, and West Ham where they were just getting frustrated um, by these deep blocks and they played PSV and I think it was 5-0 or they, they'd certainly battered them and it was like, oh, if teams do go toe-to-toe with us, we can just you know simply beat them. And yeah, they're, they're obviously not a, a defensive team, Arsenal, but they are defensively so, so strong in terms of their out-of-possession play, the 4-2 the four four that... They just lock on and really suffocate teams and prevent them from from playing out from the back. So I completely agree with that. I think Liam mentioned about set pieces. Just to add the numbers to that, they have scored 16 goals from set pieces in the Premier League uh, this season, which is more than any other side as well. So when you're thinking about cup competitions, when games are likely to be tight, yes, it's across two legs, but when the the quality is so high and the margins are are so small, set pieces can become really crucial. And we've, we've seen we've got... Um, so many examples of that, of the, the Nicolas Jovert, the uh, the set-piece analyst, being on the sidelines and showing you know what to, to do in certain moments, it, defensively and offensively, um, that could play as a real positive for, for Arsenal in the, in the knockouts. Porto are their opposition. Now Porto in the Portuguese top flight, a third uh, behind Benfica and Sporting. So in that context, it doesn't feel like they're in their strongest shape that we've seen over the last 10, 20 years or so. However can be a bit misleading, can't it? Just looking at league position and projecting that onto Champions League knockouts, as Liam likes to tell us. It's almost a different sport, or at least the things that you have to do to win can be very different in this competition. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the next few months talking Champions League with you guys. You've provided a fantastic primer for me and for all the listeners ahead of the next batch of last 16 games and beyond. We'll be covering it on this podcast, so subscribe to the Athletic Podcast feed 
And you know that the best coverage that you will find in one place is brought to you by The Athletic as well. So sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash tactics. That'll be where you can get a discount on your annual subscription. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, Mark and Michael too. Uh, This has been great fun. Join us again next week and go well. The Athletic.